Welcome to the Word Encounter, episode 238. Today we'll be starting a book of 2 Corinthians as we finished 1 Corinthians yesterday. In 2 Corinthians, we find a letter. It's actually the fourth of the of four letters that Paul had uh, written to the church in Corinth. Uh, 1 Corinthians was actually the second letter that he wrote. The first letter is lost to history. We don't know what it, uh, what it contained. And the third letter is also lost. In the first letter, we find Paul responding to questions uh, that were asked to him of the church or from the church in Corinth. And so they had a lot of issues going on in the church, a lot of uh, cultural um, diversity, uh, just a lot of questions that came up uh, with regard to how they were con- how they were to conduct church, if you will, how they were to conduct um, uh, uh, their services, how they were to live, some of the things that were going on. And so Paul responded to this question or these questions, and in some cases, one could say that he was pretty harsh, you know, but he was responding out of love. He was responding from the heart of the Father. And uh, most of the uh, members of the church received it well and, and sought about to do the things that Paul was either commanding or suggesting. Uh, but there apparently was a fraction of people that weren't too thrilled with the way Paul responded, and therefore they started to call into question his authority. They started to call into question whether he was actually representing God or not. And so Paul is responding in, in 2 Corinthians uh, to these concerns. And so a lot of things that come across as I read through 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself you know, to the, to the believers, defending his um, sincerity, defending his knowledge, defending his motivation, you know. And so a lot of stuff comes across as relatively personal uh, in that regard. And sometimes, at least to me, it seems a little bit defensive. <laughs> but um, that's what is uh, contained in Second Corinthians. And so, you know, let's just jump into this word and see what Paul has to say. And so... <clears throat> Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul first greets the people. We jump down to verse 3. It says, the God of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. So a lot of times we look at God, and, and sometimes, depending on our personalities, we may see a harsh taskmaster. We may see a demanding father. We may not see a lot of love in them at all. Some people, that's all they see. But it says here that he is the God of all comfort. And to be a God of comfort, you have to be able to recognize when those you care about are in pain. And so we see that not only is the God the God of all comfort, but he is the God of recognition. He can recognize what we're going through. In verse 4, he comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So what we receive from God in the way of comfort, we our cup filleth over, our cup runneth over, and we can, you know, uh, have that uh, run over spill over into other people so, so that we are able to be the dispensers of comfort. It says, for just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, also 
uh, through Christ, our comfort overflows. And, through, and so through Christ, we're able to have our, our comfort overflowing and overflowing into other people. It says in verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patience, or which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. So what Paul is saying is like, when he says we, he's speaking of himself and Barnabas, basically, and the afflictions that they go through as they minister the word of God. And so sometimes when you can, when you read this, you're trying to, uh, it, it may seem like Paul is uh, maybe fishing for uh, sympathy because of uh, sometimes he details the things and the hardships that they are going through. And so, but he's just trying to get across to the people that this is no joke. This is no game to us. This is no game to me. This is, this is a sincere belief. And you can have faith and trust in what I tell you because, you know, th th there's nothing phony going on here. It says in verse 8, it says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. In verse 9, it says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust ourselves but, uh, but in God who raises the dead. And so Paul is saying, look, we, we were under such heavy pressure in Asia we thought that we were going to die. We thought that that was our portion, that, that our sentence was going uh, to be death. But it says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. And so in their, in their natural minds, based on the circumstances, based on what was going on, they saw nothing, no way out but death. But Paul, is, but Paul is saying that that was because that we would only trust in God and not in our own abilities to get out of these situations. In verse 10, he says, he has delivered us uh, from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him, and he will deliver us again. <clears throat> While you, uh, and he will deliver us again. I didn't finish the sentence. <laughs> he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayer. And so Paul is saying, look, we're, we're out here in the field, but, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a portion in what it is we're doing. In order to get out of these situations and circumstances, we need all of the prayer help we can get. You know, so join us in our prayers as we face these afflictions. Let's drop down here. Um, and the rest of the chapter uh, details uh, some things with regard to, to Paul's uh, plans uh, to visit them. And he's, he's, he's detailing how he, he plans to visit them and that sort of thing. And so let's go on to chapter 2. Uh, let's drop down to verse five. It says, a sinner forgiven. If anyone has caused pain, he has caused pain, not so much to me, but to some degree, not to exaggerate to all of you. So, so Paul is saying, if anyone has caused pain, it's not just to me, but it's also to all of you. This punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. So apparently somebody or some bodies have fallen into sin in the congregation and the church had disciplined them. And so Paul is responding to the knowledge of this discipline. It says this punishment by the majority is sufficient for that person. As a result, you should instead forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to affirm your love to him. Paul is saying, I'm with you in the discipline of this person and what they did. But make sure, excuse me, but make sure you don't overlook that you need to comfort him. See, God is the God of all comfort. Otherwise... 
he may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. And uh, therefore, I urge you to reaffirm uh, your love to him. And see, if this happens, see, this could be the root of, of division in the church. And so Paul is trying to caution them about watching. Yes, this person needed to be disciplined, but you also need to be aware that you need to comfort him and restore him or else this could cause problems. In verse 10, it says, anyone you forgive, I do too. <clears throat> for what I have forgiven, um, for what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. Wait, for what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, it is for your benefit in the presence of Christ. So that we not, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so Paul is, is, is telling them and trying to impart into them, I agree with the discipline and I agree with the forgiveness. Now he has to be restored because if he's not, see, it says Satan could take advantage of that. And we are ignorant of his schemes. See, one of uh, Satan's schemes is to divide and conquer, is to separate through offense. So you bring offense against somebody, they get mad, some people side with the person offended, some people side with the other side, and the next thing you know, you have a split going on, okay? And you have disunity happening. And so this is a scheme by Satan. And so Paul is saying, look, we're not ignorant of how he operates. Don't let that happen. So after the discipline, you know, make sure forgiveness comes forth and restoration. a ministry of life or death in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The word of God, people that bring the word of God to those who are perishing, or to those who are being saved, is like is 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 is, is like liquid life, if you will. <laughs> it's like life itself being dispensed into them. It's something that is not only welcome; it is something that is desired, something that is needed, something that is coveted. See, but to others, we are an aroma of death, leading to death. <clears throat> for some people, the word of God is not welcome. See, for some people, the word of God is something that is very, very, very coarse and something that they can't handle and they don't want to hear. See, why? It's very convicting. And they don't want to be convicted. They want to continue in their lifestyle, continue in doing what they want to do. So they don't want to hear anything about God. And so to those people, the aroma of God's word is death. See, to some it's life, to some it's death. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these? Excuse me. Who is adequate for these? In other words, who is adequate to bring forth these words? You know, those who sincerely believe. Those are the ones that are adequate. It says in verse 17, For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many, on the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. And so, again, this is a Paul being a little bit defensive, in my opinion. But he's saying, look, we do not market the word of God. I'm not out here preaching this word to make money. That's what he's saying. <laughs> he said, no, I'm speaking with sincerity of heart because I want people to be saved. 
let's go on to chapter 3. It says, living letters. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And so Paul, maybe even Paul senses that he's sounding a little defensive. And so he says, are we, am I sounding you know, like I'm, I'm commending myself? Am I sound, sounding like I'm bragging on myself? You know, am I sounding like I'm patting myself on the back? It says, or do we need like some letters of recommendations, um, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So this is kind of a rhetorical question. He's already founded the church and whatnot, but he's saying, or do I need to, you know, prove my uh, credentials by bringing letters of recommendation so that you can review them and, and approve of me? So again, he's speaking to those ones who have called into question his authority. And then he says, essentially, no, we don't need to do that. We don't need to bring letters of recommendations or anything like that. Why? Because you yourselves are our letter. This is what Paul is saying. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. It says you show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us. Not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Paul is saying, look, my credentials is written on your heart. See, you are a letter written uh, for God, if you will, penned by us. That's my, <laughs> those are the credentials. That, that's, that's who I am. So all of you doubters out there, all of you who are coming at me, essentially, Paul is saying, examine your heart. Examine the hearts of those around you. That's the fruit of my labor, essentially, is what Paul is saying. Paul goes in to talk about his, his competence and defend that. Um, then we get into um, a new covenant ministry. In verse 9, it says, If for the ministry that brought uh, condemnation had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. So he's comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. So he's saying even if the law essentially had glory, but we know that the law brings death. But Paul is saying even if the law brought glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. The new covenant in Jesus is even more glorious. He says, in fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpassed it. Again, he's talking about the new covenant through Jesus surpassing the law delivered by Moses because, again, a lot of the believers in Corinth are Jews, and so he has to speak to them. And I have to believe that a lot of the issues were um, caused by Jewish uh, custom and tradition with those who were not Jewish. You see, and then trying to find out how all of this fits into this new covenant. And that is probably, or not probably, it's, it's most definitely the source of many uh, coming, at Paul, uh, coming at Paul and and accusing him of being something that he's not, uh, questioning his motivations and, and other things like that. Verse 12, since then, uh, since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness. 
We are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from gazing steadily until the end of the glory of of what was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. And so Paul is saying, look, we're not like Moses where we're covering our face because the glory of God was too much for the people to absorb. For for if you looked on the glory of God, they felt that you would die. So Moses had to cover his face so that the glory would not uh, be um, um, present or not be observable, if you will, by the Israelites. And he's saying, no, we're not like that. He said, even in that, their hearts were hardened. (laughs) It says in verse 15, Yet today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. A lot of people were clinging to the Old Testament, clinging to the the law and whatnot, but they they weren't being delivered by it. But they weren't recognizing that they weren't being delivered by it because the veil was still covering their hearts. It says in verse 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed, symbolizing that you can approach God through Jesus and you won't die in his presence. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into a single image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. And so with unveiled faces now, see, we look upon the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces now. You see, we don't need to have somebody, some human person stand between us and the glory of the Lord as they looked at Moses. That's not the case today. We approach the Lord directly through Jesus with unveiled faces. Chapter 4, the light of the gospel. It says in verse 1, Therefore we have this ministry because we were shown mercy. We do not give up. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are dying, is what Paul is saying. And so, again, he is, <laughs> I hope you're getting the, the, the theme here, he's defending himself while trying to impart wisdom and knowledge at the same time. It says in verse 4, in their case, those who are perishing, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sometimes when I read stuff like this, I wonder, okay, is it, is, is, are people choosing not to see the glory of God? Are people choosing uh, to not have the wisdom of God uh, uh, poured into them? Or even if they wanted to, they can't. There's something that has God hardened their hearts so that they can't. It's impossible for them uh, to absorb this. I don't know. I really don't know. But I just, I wonder that at times. Um, In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. In In this case, the God of our age, one could say it's money, fame, celebrity, um, uh, many other things possibly. You know, are those things blinding people's minds? Of course they are. Can they be unblinded? I have to believe that they can, but I don't know. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, 
and ourselves as uh, your servants for Jesus' sake. So Paul is saying, look, we aren't claiming to be anything ourselves. What we're claiming to do is represent the Lord Jesus for your sake, for Corinthians, for your sake, Corinthians. See, <clears throat> we're not doing this for us. See, we're doing it. We're essentially slaves of the gospel of Jesus for your sake. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand and believe. Treasure in clay jars, it says in verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. This is extremely important. You could almost, I'd have to think about it more, you could almost boil the whole Bible down into this particular verse. God entrusted the extremely valuable gospel to be carried and delivered by fragile humans. That's what he did. He entrusted this gospel. It says, now we have this treasure in clay jars. Paul is saying, now we have this treasure, this gospel, this valuable entity in fragile clay jars. You drop a clay jar, it'll shatter. We got this fragile, I mean, we got this very important thing in this very fragile container. That is describing us. We have this very fragile message, I mean, excuse me, this very powerful and strong and extraordinary message from the Lord contained in these fragile vessels, in these human bodies. And he's entrusted us to carry it and deliver it. Sometimes I question God's wisdom that he trusted something so valuable to something so uh, fragile as human beings, but he did. And he said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that life, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. We kill ourselves, our self-ambition, uh, uh, our, se our selfishness, our self-desires and all this. We could kill all that for the sake of Jesus living in us so that Jesus may be displayed through us. And many times, maybe even most times, we don't do a very good job of that. For we who, are, uh, for we who live are also being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may be displayed in our mortal flesh. In order for Jesus to shine through us, more of us in our selfishness has to dissipate, has to die, so that those empty spaces can be filled by Jesus. It says in verse 12, So then death is at work in us, but life in you. So again, Paul is saying, look, death is at work, is, death is at work in me, and because of that, you're getting more life. So again, he's defending himself. He's trying to get them to see what he's doing and whatever he's saying or preaching is with this goal in mind so that they can have more life through his death. And it says in verse 16, Therefore, we do not give up even though our outer person is being destroyed. Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary uh, light infliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable uh, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Again, 
an, an extremely critical voice, uh, verse here. A lot of times we only react and do things by what we see. <clears throat> but we don't understand there's so much stuff going on in the unseen realm. And what goes on in the unseen realm is eternal. What we see is temporal. But most of us react to what we see, present company included. Let's go on to chapter 5. It says, Our future after death. For we know that if our earthly tent, for we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, if our body is destroyed, if I die, we will have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. So Paul is saying, we know that, that if we die, I've got an eternal dwelling place. See? He says, so we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul is saying, look, there are things going on in the unseen realm, and I know that I have an eternal body. While I'm here present in the body, I'm away from my eternal body. I'm away from the Lord, and I realize that. But I also know that I must appear before the judgment seat of Christ because I know that each person must be evaluated, essentially, for what he has done in this body, whether good or evil. And so Paul is saying, priority-wise, I know what I must do in this body, even if it leads to this body decaying in order for my eternal reward to be what I want it to be, essentially, because <laughs> I know I'm going to have to stand before the judge, before the righteous judge, Jesus, and make an account for everything I've done, good or evil. And Paul isn't just speaking for himself. That's all of us. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And if he died for all, so that all those who live should no longer live for themselves. See? He died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And so Jesus died for us all, so that we may have the opportunity to choose eternal life. But because he died for us all, those who live, those who choose to follow Jesus, have also chosen no longer to live for themselves. Because we, we, we've recognized that Jesus died for us, so we're making the same decision. We're going to die to self for the sake of others. The ministry of reconciliation, which we all have, verse 16. From now on, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. I mean, that, that's a mouthful right there. Let, let me keep going. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we now, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has... Yeah, everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Let me just keep going before I comment. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has uh, committed the message of reconciliation to us. The message of reconciliation. The whole purpose of Jesus coming and dying on the cross and then being raised on the third day and ascending into heaven was so that man, after Adam's fall, could reconcile himself back to God. So our whole ministry, our whole purpose, our whole drive, our whole motivation is to minister reconciliation to the masses so that they can choose to be reunited or reconciled back to God, into God's family. That's our whole purpose. In a nutshell, that's the whole purpose. So we all have the ministry of reconciliation. That's what we're trying to do. When you're getting people saved or trying to get people saved, you're trying to reconcile them back to God. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us all so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God through Jesus. God made Jesus, okay, the righteousness of all so that we might choose him in order to be reconciled back to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us all so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at this. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God because we play a part in, uh, we play a part in this. We have to be obedient. You know, we have to confess with our mouths. We have to believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. And then the word says we shall be saved and we shall be reconciled back to God. With that, we are done for today. We'll pick it up uh, tomorrow in the next episode. Everybody stay safe. Be blessed. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And if he graces us with another day of life, the next episode will be coming up tomorrow in the Word Encounter. Bye-bye.